Um, I want to first off just welcome all of you guys here um, to the Anger Baptist Temple this morning. For those of you whom I have not yet had the chance to meet, which I imagine is most of you, my name is Calvin. I am uh, one of the associate pastors here on staff. I spend most of my time with the youth ministry um, as I'm the director of student ministry, uh, and I absolutely love it. Uh, I love getting to invest in the lives of the next generation of God's church. Uh, but I also really enjoy the opportunities that I get to, to be up here and to get to speak um, to all of you. And so uh, this opportunity is uh, special, and I can honestly and sincerely say that I value every opportunity I get to communicate the truth of God's Word, uh, primarily because I feel as though when I am preaching the Word, I am presenting the truth of what I believe God has done in me. And I have the opportunity to share and to communicate with all of you what I believe God has written on my heart, what I believe God has um, just etched in the stone of my soul. Uh, and today's lesson is, is no different. Um, and so I'm, I'm very excited, very eager uh, for today's lesson. I have to say, it is not what I had originally intended uh, to preach on. I, for the last couple of weeks, have been preparing a very different sermon than one you're going to hear today. Uh, matter of fact, I should probably apologize to Deaf Ministry because my notes I sent you yesterday may or may not be what you hear today. Nonetheless, um, it'll, be, it'll be good. Uh, I have the, the privilege of closing out uh, a sermon series that we have been doing for almost the entire year. We have been walking through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, as it is generally called. It is a the, the first recorded teachings of Jesus by the Apostle Matthew. Uh, and before I really dive into the, the meat of the lesson, I just kind of want to say a couple things about the gospel of, of Matthew, um, about how he wrote it, how he shaped it, um, and why it's important to then what we're going to talk about today. And so um, something I want you guys to think about is the gospel writers, the writers of the gospel of Jesus, they all wrote what they wrote for a very specific purpose. Um, they did not write everything Jesus did. They did not write everything Jesus taught. Matter of fact, John himself says that if he were to have recorded all of the miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus did in his life, he supposes that there would not be enough books that could be written on everything that, that Jesus had done. And instead, he wrote what he wrote for a specific purpose, which was to communicate to his readers that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that we could have life through him alone. And so John takes various stories of Jesus's life. He takes various teachings of Jesus's life and he puts them together and he crafts them and shapes them into a narrative that communicates a purpose that Jesus is the son of God and he is the one who brings salvation. And that if you want to be restored to the heavenly father that you cannot see, you must go through the person Jesus Christ. 
And the gospel of Matthew is no different. Matthew takes the different stories, takes different aspects of Jesus's life and ministry, and he crafts them together for a purpose. And one of the big differences, let's say, for between you know, the, the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew, or the gospel according to Matthew, is that John was written to a Gentile audience, and Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And so John doesn't have as many um, references to the Old Testament or to the Jewish law and their um, kingdom of God as Matthew does, because John wasn't writing to a group of people who understood those things, whereas Matthew... Matthew was writing to the Jews, to a people who were very familiar with the Pentateuch. They were very familiar with the prophets. And so everything he says and all the illustrations and examples he uses is for a purpose. He's trying to communicate to God's chosen people, the Jews, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the one that the prophets all prophesied about. He is the son of God, but he is the savior of the world, the savior of the Jews. And so he starts with his gospel with, you know, a genealogy going back to Abraham. Why? Because Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was the father of the Israelite nation. And so he traces Jesus back to uh, Abraham, whereas John, his genealogy goes back to before even creation, how Jesus was the incarnate word of God, right? And so there's two different starts because there's two different purposes. And Continuing on throughout John's gospel, he has a different purpose, so he takes the teachings and shapes them one way, whereas Matthew has a purpose, and he shapes them a different way. And I say all this because one of the main things that Matthew's trying to communicate in his gospel is he is trying to show the Jewish people that Jesus is the new Moses, the new teacher of Israel whose words must be obeyed. And we get that from a passage in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses tells the people of Israel, listen to me, one day there will come a teacher sent from God whose words you must obey. And, and for the Jewish people, that was regarded as a prophecy of the Messiah. It was regarded as one of the things that the people needed to look for to give credit and validity to the one who claimed to be the Messiah. And so when Matthew is writing his story of Jesus's life, he's writing the events and the teachings and all of it in such a way so as to prove to the Jews that Jesus was indeed the new Moses, the prophet of Israel whose words must be obeyed. And you can then trace that idea throughout the entire structure of the book of Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, because he talks about Jesus um, being baptized, and it's a symbol of when Moses led the people through the Red Sea, the waters, and right after that, he went into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and so Moses led the people, the nation of Israel, to the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and then Jesus goes from the wilderness to the mountain to, to teach the law, and Moses took the people to the mountain to receive the law. And, and there's, there's a lot of analogy and a lot of symbolism, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but what I'm trying to communicate to you is that what Matthew records Jesus as saying is his way of communicating to the people 
that this is the law. This is the truth. These words of the man Jesus, like that of the law of Moses, must be obeyed. And, and it even goes even further to that where the structure of the gospel according to Matthew is, is five sets of teaching with five sets of discourse, and they're paralleled throughout the entire gospel. And it's a very similar structure to that of the Pentateuch where, where Moses is giving the law, and then there's narrative or there's discourse, and then he gives more laws, and then there's more discourse, and more laws and discourse. And again, Matthew literally structures his entire gospel to reflect the Pentateuch that was written by Moses to prove that Jesus is the new Moses. And again, I, you know, some of you are thinking, okay, wow, who cares? Who, who really cares? That's a lot of stuff. The reason that it matters, the reason that it matters is because what Matthew writes down for us to know is not suggestions it's not marvelous, wonderful teachings that we should reflect on and go, hmm, that's pretty profound and wise. What, Mo what Matthew is recording Jesus as saying is law. It must be obeyed. And when you understand and you study the depth of the connections between who Jesus is as the Son of God, the Messiah, Savior of the world, you are convicted in your soul that you must obey the commands that he gives. And when I preach, I always preach with this mentality of mine to give you deeper understanding of the word of God, to expose, to unveil, uncover, however you want to phrase it, to give you a deeper understanding of the word of God so that you walk away from today feeling as though you were taught a truth that made you understand the Bible a little bit better because the Bible is a long and confusing book and if you do not dive deep into it, you miss so much of what it's trying to communicate. And so my goal today is to give you a deeper understanding of the word of God, which I believe then leads to bigger faith, bigger faith, a greater desire, a greater intrinsic belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he said he will do. And so with a greater understanding, we have bigger faith, which I believe then leads to greater obedience because as we will learn today, Faith without obedience is not true saving faith at all. And yes, I want greater obedience out of you. And yes, I want to see us as the body of Christ walk in harmony with the commands of Christ so that we can enter eternity being told, well done, thy good and faithful servant. I want us, the body of Christ here at Anchorage Baptist Temple, to walk blamelessly before God, walking out all of his statutes, walking out all of his commands and everything that he has for this church. And yes, I desire obedience because I know that the Lord desires obedience, but obedience comes from faith, which comes from understanding. And so my goal today is to give you an understanding which will lead 
to bigger faith and greater obedience. So with that being said, we are going to move into the body of this sermon. I'm going to structure it similar to some of the sermons that we've had over the last couple of weeks. Um, I know Pastor Preston and Pastor West kind of used this structure um, throughout their sermons. And the first is to expose a lie, then present the truth, and then dare you to live it out, right? The sermon that we're in is truth and dare. And so we're going to expose the lie and at the same time present the truth and then use that truth to dare you to be different, to live a life more aligned with the mission of God, the purposes of God, and ultimately the will of God. Because like we learned last week, it is those who do the will of the Father in heaven that receive eternal life. And so we, as the people of God, we who claim to be Christ's followers, we want to make sure that we are in lockstep with the will of God so that we are not missing out on truth, that we're, that we're not being led astray, wayward to the world, but we are staying fixed on God's will and plan for our life. And so we will expose the lie, present the truth, and then I will dare you to live it out. So first, we're going to expose the lie. First, we're going to expose the lie, and, and I want you guys to be, um, be patient with me. Um, I want you guys to, to, to see this next slide, see what I'm going to say, and then just wait to make any judgments until we get through the course of the sermon. If you still have questions, if you still feel like I'm a heretic, come talk to me afterwards, um, and you know we'll, we'll, we'll work through it. But the lie that I want to, to bring to your attention is that belief in God saves you from hell, okay? I just, want you to, I just want you to hear that for a minute. I want you to think about it. I want you to ponder it and process it. Belief, this is the lie that belief in God saves you from hell. And this lie, it comes from all sorts of culture, Christian tradition, misinterpretation of scripture, misrepresentation of truth by pastors, teachers, well-intentioned leaders. But we as a body of Christ at times, and not in all situations, have but have at times presented a truth that if you just if you just believe, if you just believe and acknowledge, you know, yes, God, God is real, that you are then given your little golden ticket to get to eternal life. And you don't have to go to hell. Right? Because that's what we all want. We just nobody really wants to go to hell. So so I believe in God and I'll tell I'll say that there's a God and you know, I might even go to church sometimes and, 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 and live a somewhat moral life. And I'm going to do that because I believe that if I do that, I won't go to hell. However, this in fact is not what the scripture as a whole communicates. There may be a verse or two that if taken out of context or out of the entire canon of scripture could be interpreted to give this belief. However, this is not what the scriptures as a whole teach about receiving eternal life. 
This would, in fact, be a lie if you were to study all of the scriptures. So, let's look at a couple of passages of scripture that I believe are going to shed light on uh, this lie. And, and, and at times, um, some of these passages of scripture are even actually used to, to communicate the lie, that you just have to believe. And so I'm going to read uh, Galatians 3, 6 through 9. It says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, which is a quote from Genesis 15, 6, when God first presents his promises to Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And that, that's the command that God gave Abraham, the, the promise that God gave Abraham, that Abraham then believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, so summarize this. I'm going to give you some context. The, Paul is making an argument here that Abraham was justified by his faith that because he believed the word of God and trusted God, he was justified. He was made righteous in the eyes of God. Okay, and this idea is um, found elsewhere in scripture. We look at Romans 4, also written by Paul. It says this, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Again, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, a quote from Genesis 15. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So this is a further explanation of what Paul was saying in Galatians. Paul is saying, listen, we are not justified in the eyes of God by what we do because nothing we do could ever make us righteous or good enough for God. And he is specifically talking to a group of people who have a little bit of an understanding of the law. And there's this conflict between, you know, do I have to become a Jew in order to receive salvation? And, or can I, can I still have my Gentile past and, and be saved by my faith rather than the law of works that the Jews were living under? And Paul is making this argument, listen, Abraham was justified because he believed God because he trusted God. So we are made righteous in the eyes of God because of our faith, because we believe God. And so, so many times people stop with these verses and they say, okay, great. So I'll just, I'll believe God. I'll believe that he's real. Matter of fact, I'll even acknowledge that, that the Bible is written by Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's the one and only true king. Great. 
And that's, that's what I have to do, right? I have to believe what God said, and I'm good. I'm justified. That's what Paul's saying here, right? But what they fail to do is to continue to read, to continue to search the scriptures and to look through what it is that God says. Matter of fact, they even use more passages of scripture like Romans 3, which is a very, very commonly used uh, passage of scripture. I'm going to read it for you because, man, you could read it and be genuinely convinced that all you have to do is believe. So let's read it. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, which if you look back in Romans 1.16, it says that the righteousness of God was revealed by sending Jesus Christ. Because in his divine forbearance, patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just or proven to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, before I move into this next portion of scripture, I want all of you to hear me what I am saying and what I am not saying. I am not saying that we are justified by our works. I am not saying that God looks upon us and grants us righteousness because of our own merit, our own righteousness, our own self-imposed holiness. What I'm saying is that there's more to the story than just claiming to believe. So let's read then in James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. That is, that is a proper and good belief for you to hold. Even the demons, however, believe and shudder. 
Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, there is a quote again, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, from Genesis 15, 6. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. In order for us to have an understanding of what it truly means to believe and follow Jesus, we must understand what the entirety of the scriptures communicate about the given topic, about faith. And so I want all of you to stop for a moment and and just sit and ponder. Do not deceive yourselves. Faith that does not lead to works is dead. And, And this is not me trying to push something on you. This is just the conclusion that I came to after reading the verses that I just read to all of you. That that faith, true faith, faith that actually acknowledges that there is an invisible God of the universe whose name has been revealed to us as Yahweh is the creator and sustainer of all things, the rightful king of the universe. Faith that actually believes that will lead to good works, will lead to actions. Because if you say you have faith in those things and yet you do absolutely nothing with it, you don't actually believe. You don't actually believe that he's the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe who's looking for people to acknowledge his lordship and surrender their life to them. You might say you believe that. You might say and acknowledge, yeah, yeah, I believe that God is real. And you might even go to church and you might even, you know, tithe and serve and, and, and all of those things. But at the end of the day, in your heart, the faith that you say you have must lead to the obedience of God's commands. Because how can you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and not at the same time confess that you are now his slave and are going to obey all of his commands? The idea of, of Jesus being our Lord means for him to be our master. It means for us to simultaneously admit that he is not just our savior, but we are his bondservant, his slave. You cannot claim Jesus as Lord without also claiming yourself as slave. That's literally the nature. 
If I claim that my mother is my mother, I'm also at the same time claiming that I'm her son. That's the nature of that title. And so when you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, like Paul tells the Philippian jailer in Acts, I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, you are also confessing that you are now his slave and therefore must obey. Because true faith, true acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord means that you must obey all of his commands. True faith leads to good works. Faith that does not lead to good works is dead. Which is why I want to present a truth. Saving faith leads to works. Saving faith, faith that in the end will actually prove substantial when you stand before God when you are facing judgment for your human wickedness, the faith that will actually justify you is faith that then led to obedience, that led to a lifelong, however long that may be, pursuit of the commands of God. That being said, we're now going to get to Matthew. If you will, if you haven't already, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to read the three verses that we worked through last week, and then I'm going to move into the final verses of the Sermon on the Mount. And I believe that what I'm going to communicate uh, or that what I'm going to read will kind of become self-explanatory here in a moment. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then it goes straight into this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Not just the people who hears them and believes them and go, yeah, man, that's good stuff right there. Uh, wow. Matter of fact, if you actually read, continue, it says that the, the, the listeners who, who heard the teachings of Jesus marveled at what he said because he spoke to them with authority not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He spoke to them as though he had authority in what he was saying. And they marveled. Yet even that attitude, marveling at the teachings of Jesus, doesn't lead to eternal life. Obedience based on faith is what leads to eternal life. He says, then everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who, there it is, hears these words of mine and does not 
do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. These couple of verses are what Matthew records as Jesus's culmination to his first great teaching where he gives all of these commands and he gives all of these teachings, marvelous teachings, profound yet mysterious teachings, teachings we've been studying for almost an entire year. And at the very end, he says, so are you going to do it or not? Are, are you going to be like a wise man or a foolish man? Your choice. I gave you all these teachings. You, you've seen me perform miracles. You're going to see many more to come. But at the end of the day, what good is it for you if you've heard all these teachings and you don't do them? What good is it if you say to your neighbor, go and be blessed, but you don't actually give them what they need for the flesh when they're naked and hungry and poor. And, and church, I think at times it is so easy for us to come to the house of God in routine every Sunday morning and hear teaching and go, wow, that is good. Man, I needed to hear that. Whew. What's for lunch? What's the score of the football game? Oh, it hasn't started yet. Okay, good. Oh, man, I got so many emails to get through before tomorrow. I got five meetings. I don't know how I'm going to get all of them done. And we just go right back onto life. And we're like, I believe God, man, I, I believe you are real, but I'm going to go do my own thing. And yet we see things like John that says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we know that the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. And, and, and God says, if you really love me, like if you actually love me, you will keep my commandments. Just like he's saying, if you actually believe in me, if you actually have faith, it will lead to good works. Your life will be transformed because you can't acknowledge me as the almighty king of the universe and not do something about it. It's not possible. And I think that there's so many times we get so distracted. We get so distracted from actually following God and obeying the teachings that we miss it. He says, he continues this in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Church, we cannot be 
the world changers. We cannot reach Alaska with the gospel. We cannot make a big deal about following Jesus if we don't actually follow Jesus, if we don't actually do it. We can't have Christmas miracle offering and give a bunch of money and be like, yeah, that's great, and never once actually be the hands and feet of Jesus to the people who need it. What good is it if we say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna raise a bunch of money, we're gonna help a bunch of people, and we are going to make sure that people know God is still real, and then be like, yeah, that's good for someone else. That's great teaching. Love that. Love the idea of Christmas miracle offering. But for me, I see, I'm really saving up for this new snow machine, this new car, this new, you name it. So we'll let somebody else do that today, but not me. What good is it if we spend an entire year diving deep into the teachings of the God of the universe? And then at the end of it, we go, wow, that was, that was a good sermon. I'm not sure which ones I actually remember, but uh, you know, it's all right. On to the next. We have to be doers of the word, not just hearers. We have to be obedient. We have to soften our hearts and say, God, what do I need to do to love you better? Love is an action. Love and agape love is a selfless, sacrificial love where you lay down your life for God because he laid his life down for you. That's what it means to love God. It's not this emotion. Emotions are great. But the, at the end of the day, if the emotion does not lead to action, so what? And that's exactly what's being communicated. That's exactly what Jesus is saying at the very end of this sermon. He's giving all these truths in all these sermons. And he's saying, but only the ones who actually do something about it, in the end, will be saved. And so my challenge, my, my plead is that for every single person who's here in this room today, that you would not hear these teachings, that you would not acknowledge them as true and then walk out and do nothing, but that you would actually reflect in silence between you and God and say, God, what do I need to do to obey what you have commanded me? I wanna dare you to live it out, to be wise, be like the wise man and obey God's commands. What commands? The commands that we've been studying for a whole year, the commands of the scriptures, the teachings. And the thing is, I know that some of you in here are, will still hear this. You will still hear this and you will think, man, that was really good. Someone in here really needed to hear that. And you will not stop and think, maybe it was me. Maybe I needed to hear that. Maybe I've gotten into this pattern of this cultural Christianity and I haven't actually asked God, am I doing your will? Am I listening to your Holy Spirit? Am I acknowledging what you wanna do in and through me for the world? Do I hate what you hate and love what you love? Do I push off evil and cling to what is good? 
Do I crucify my flesh and walk by my spirit? Because that's what God desires of a people who say they believe in him. And I know all over this room, there are people who have convinced themselves, who have told themselves lies, things like, I don't know if I can really be all in. I don't know if I can really surrender. I don't know if I could really quit my job and do what I think God might be calling me to do. I don't know if I can really surrender my finances and be generous with the money that God has given me. I don't know if I can actually be poor in spirit. I don't know if I can actually pray and fast the way Jesus commands me. I don't know if I can actually live out what God has done for me. There's some of you in this room who are thinking, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I don't know if I actually want that. That, that kind of messes with the plan that I had for my life. I, I don't know if I'm actually ready to obey. 